Okay, um, we're running a little behind schedule, so I want to just jump right in. For our last session, basically I just want to focus in a little bit, drill down a little bit on this idea of practice. If you have that paradigm of your head of teaching, practice, community, and the Holy Spirit over time and through the hard knocks, I wish I had more time to chat through each one. But I want to kind of drill down on practice. And the reason that one over the other is, is I think for a lot of people, that's the missing link, so to speak. Especially some of you are coming out of the charismatic tradition, so you have this high, robust view of the Holy Spirit, which is beautiful. But for a lot of people, this idea of practice is the missing link, or if you prefer the language of church history and the spiritual disciplines. In my experience, and hopefully it's better on this side of the pond than where I live, but the spiritual disciplines are pretty much gone, in, at least in the millennial generation, if not in Gen X too. And instead, we have an iPhone and church on Sunday and whatever. And so I just want to chat into you about this. Let's start off in 1 Corinthians 9. If you have a Bible, turn there. Um, this is a great starting place for the idea of practice or the spiritual disciplines. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Take a look at verse 24. Paul writes this. Do you not know... That in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize, unless if you're a millennial. Then we all get a prize. (laughs) Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. There's our language. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul's metaphor for what following Jesus is like is that of athletics. It's like running in a race or boxing in a fight. Now, Corinth, of course, was home to the Isthmian Games. Every two years, tens of thousands of people from all over the Greco-Roman world, all over the Mediterranean, would converge on Corinth to watch. So this metaphor, the odds are, would have struck a chord in Corinth. But Paul actually used this metaphor all over his writings. For example, here's a sample or two, Acts chapter 20. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to, here it is, finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Or in Galatians, a question. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Next slide. Paul to his protege, a young man by the name of Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. Or in what we think is the last letter of his life, right before his death, he writes, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. Here it is. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. And he goes on. So this is not, this imagery of like running in a race or boxing in a fight and of athletics, it's not a one-off like spur of the moment metaphor for Paul. It is over and over again he comes back to this idea. And notice the central role that discipline plays in this metaphor. In fact, in uh, the NIV, if you have that translation, in my Bible, at the top, there's a, it's not in the original Greek, but in the English translation, there's a chapter title at the top, and it says, quote, the need for self-discipline. 
Verse 25 in the NIV reads, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. But a number of other translations have, quote, all athletes are disciplined in their training. Verse 27 reads, I strike a blow to my body, but a number of translations read, I discipline my body. For Paul, to be a disciple is to be a disciplined one. Now, what Paul is getting at here, what are usually called the spiritual disciplines, I actually shy away from that language. I prefer the language of practice. One, because spiritual for most people in the Western world means unembodied. But if you think about it for Paul or just even think about the spiritual disciplines, they are all things that you do with your mind and with your body. Like even prayer, it's something you do with your mind, with your body. Fasting for sure is something you do. Living in community, the bread and the cup, worship. Right now, what you're doing, the teaching is a spiritual discipline. Um, right now, you're doing that with your body and with your mind. For Paul, the body is actually the focal point of your relationship to God. He would call it in another spot, the temple, right? So your body is a key part of your spirituality. Secondly, because discipline is a great thing, but at least where I come from, it has pretty much all negative connotations. It's right up there with like dieting or something, you know, especially in our kind of hedonistic society. Discipline is like, oh, he's really disciplined or she's really disciplined, but they are kind of the odd man or woman out. So for all sorts of reasons, more than anything based on actually the language of Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount through the Gospels, I prefer the language of the practices of Jesus. But just for, like, just for ease, for our time this afternoon, I will call them the spiritual disciplines. And basically what I want to talk to you from this passage about, um, rather than exegete, that I just kind of want to step back a minute and I want to talk to you about the why, the what, and the how of spiritual disciplines. All right, so that's our little roadmap. First off, the why. Have you ever come to church on a Sunday and uh, been inspired by worship and encounter with God or by the teaching or by a conversation to change. But then, you know, by Monday afternoon or Thursday morning, you're like back in the exact same tired, uncreative pattern. Has that happened to anybody or is that just me and a few other people I know? Yes. I'm guessing you're all like, yes. That's because, as I said before, information transfer alone is not enough for long-term transformation because, and I said this earlier, knowing something is not the same as doing something, which is still not the same as wanting to do something. That's why all of us have a gap, not only between what we know and what we do, but often also, in particular if you're a follower of Jesus, between what we do and what we want. And um, there's something here that we really need to get at the loves and the longings that make up on our heart. The reality is that what we love in our heart has a far greater influence on what we do than what we know in our head. To be human is to love. We can't not love. This goes all the way back to Aristotle and like early intellectuals and thinkers. We are first and foremost lovers. The question is not what do we, is not do you love, but what do you love? And how you answer that question, follower of Jesus or not, will define you and will define the trajectory of your character arc over a lifetime. And again, our problem isn't that we don't love. It's that we love so many of the wrong things or we love things out of order and our heart is, in the language of the hymn, prone to wander. So the question for a lot of us as we follow Jesus is how do we change what we love? And the answer is through practice. As I said earlier, this is where theology, philosophy, and psychology all agree. The things we do do something to us. We are the end result of our daily and weekly habits or practices. What we do on a regular basis, we grow and mature 
or demature we become. And that's why our habits, or for a follower of Jesus, our practices or our disciplines, get into us, not through our prefrontal cortex, but through the limbic system. Not through our mind or imagination, like a teaching, what I'm doing now, but rather through what the Bible, writers of the Bible call the heart. Here's a good working definition of the heart from Jamie K.A. Smith. Quote, the fulcrum of your most fundamental longings a visceral subconscious orientation to the world. Meaning your heart is like an engine that is driving you forward toward the vision of the good life that's in your mind beforehand. Have a look at this from Smith. He writes, next slide. Because we are what we want, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus, Scripture counsels, above all else, guard your what? Heart, for everything you do flows from it. Discipleship, we might say, I love this, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. Discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. Saying that one of the primary tasks of our apprenticeship to Jesus is learning how to curate our own heart, how to point and push and pull our loves and our longings in the right direction. And this is where practice plays a key role. Role. It's our practices that give shape to our desires, for better or for worse. Of course, the best example of this I know of is shopping. I'm assuming, like you all have figured this out by now, that the more you get, the more you wet. Okay, apparently you have not figured it out yet. The more you get, the more you want. Um, we all know this to be true. We live in a materialistic society, and like it does not fulfill its promise to us. We think that, you know, going shopping to buy something that we want will satiate our hunger or thirst for more. And it does for about five minutes. And then, ironically, it makes us want even more. Shopping to overcome, you know, discontentment or greed or desires like pouring oil on the fire. It's the exact opposite. I always think about, um, like, at Christmas time, I'll normally get, like, clothes for Christmas. I honestly, the most discontent I ever am all year long when it comes to material things, like the week after Christmas. Because like somebody gives me a new shirt, I'm like, this is a great new shirt, but you know, actually, I need a new pair of jeans to go with it, and actually, my, I need a new belt, and actually my belt's black, but my shoes are brown, so I need a new pair of shoes, and it's like, ooh, there's a new watch at the spot, that's a nice, like, all of a sudden, like, I wasn't even thinking about it a week ago, now I'm like, I will not be happy until I have that thing that I don't need in the first place. And that's a dumb example, but we laugh because it's out of our, we live in a materialist society, most of us have at least a little bit of experience with that. The more we shop, the more we want to shop. And that's not just true of shopping, it's true of eating and drinking and Netflix and reading the Bible and prayer. And of course, it's bad news for shopping, but it's great news for discipleship to Jesus. It means that through practicing the way of Jesus, we can curate our heart, we can recalibrate our heart when we get off track. So that's the why behind 
any kind of spiritual discipline, reading your Bible, prayer, going to church, is to curate your heart, your loves and your longings to move in the direction of Jesus and your apprenticeship to him. Secondly, let's talk about the what. What are the spiritual? Some of you are like, I don't even know what a spiritual discipline is exactly. Well, before we talk about the spiritual disciplines, think for a minute about the whole point of discipline in general. So this is a little definition of a discipline right out of, say, a psychology textbook. Quote, a discipline is any activity that I can do by direct effort that will eventually enable me to do that which currently I cannot do by direct effort. Okay, that language is a little bit tricky. Um, Once again, say athletics is a great metaphor. Um, The discipline of running. Uh, Right now, you don't have the power to go run a marathon. Through the discipline of you going to run every day or every other day, you start to grow that power in you, and so that something right now you cannot do, eventually you can do. Uh, think back if you're a musician. Think of scales on piano. It's a way to do... Some, right now you can't play Bach through the discipline or the practice of you know, every single afternoon for 45 minutes or whatever you practice your piano, you start to become the kind of person who actually cannot, right? A discipline is a way to access power. Now, um, apply that to a spiritual discipline. A spiritual disciplines are essentially to the way of Jesus what you know, a scale is to piano, or drills are to soccer, or a track workout is to a half marathon. It's a way to access power. So here's a working definition of the spiritual disciplines. Quote, the spiritual disciplines are practices based on the lifestyle of Jesus that create time and space for us to access the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, and in doing so, be transformed from the inside out. Now, there's no official list of the spiritual disciplines because, on one hand, basically anything that you read about in the life of Jesus is a spiritual discipline. And a lot of times, where a lot of people miss it, a lot of the most important teachings of Jesus are actually not a teaching. They're just a story. You read that Jesus got up early in the morning and went off to pray. It's kind of like, hint, 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 hint. There's no Jesus saying, you have to start every single morning by reading your Bible and prayer. There's no command anywhere in the New Testament to read your Bible in the morning or to pray every morning. There's just Jesus getting up and, okay, if Jesus needed to start his day in prayer, maybe I do. You know what I mean? There's not, like, Jesus was, would regularly keep the Sabbath. He never says, you have to keep the Sabbath if you follow me. But Jesus needed to keep the Sabbath. And then he would just say, so take up your cross and follow me. That's how, often how the Jesus, teaching of Jesus is. You read a story about Jesus, and then you hear Jesus say, come, follow me right? So it's not all in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in this kind of up on the mountain. It's there, but it's anything from the life of Jesus himself. But then it's even wider that, even broader than that, because in a sense, it's anything that's life-giving. So you don't read about Jesus journaling, like this was 1,500 years before moleskin and your little hipster art pen or something like that, you know? Um, you don't read about Jesus like hiking, like the, everything was, it was called walking everywhere. Like hiking was a regular part of his life. You know, for a lot of people, journaling or hiking, these are like key core spiritual disciplines, right? That's great. Anything that is a way to access 
the power and the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, the top kind of seven or so spiritual disciplines in my mind are one, silence and solitude, two, prayer, fasting, reading the scriptures, living in community, Sabbath, and simplicity. Those in my mind, those are kind of like the core practices or spiritual disciplines for the way of Jesus. Of course, we could add all, and in Sabbath, I would include Sunday worship in that. We could add all sorts of other disciplines and practices to that. I love this. Again, um, would not be a teaching on the spiritual disciplines without a quote from Willard. He writes this, the disciplines are activities of mind and body purposefully undertaken to bring our personality and total being into effective cooperation with the divine order. They enable us more and more to live in a power that is, strictly speaking, beyond us, deriving from the spiritual realm itself as we, here's a quote from Romans, yield ourselves to God as those that are alive from the dead and are members, the parts of our body, as instruments of righteousness unto God. So the disciplines are how we, they are the actual, like, this is how you abide in the vine. This is how you, like, live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit and how you're transformed and you take on the inner disposition of love and joy and peace and patience and, like, you you have the heart of Jesus, not just the behavior, but heart first and then behavior. Like, it's all through this medium of the spiritual disciplines. Put another way, the disciplines are how we actually follow Jesus. Jesus. And once again, we have to get back to this idea that the way of Jesus is just that. It is a way of life. There's this weird, you know, and um, forgive me, I don't know Australian culture that well at all yet, but I think this is true of kind of the Western world as a whole. Coming out of the Reformation, there was this reaction, or I would argue overreaction, to 16th century Catholicism. And you have, of course, the pendulum that goes over to the other side, and you have this, like, not fear, I would argue full-on paranoia of what you know, the reformers would call works-based righteousness, if that's language that's at all familiar to you. And again, people got confused, like effort and earning got somehow lumped together. I think of that quote from earlier, like grace is not opposed to, earning, to effort, it's opposed to earning. Right? They're not the same thing, but somehow those two things got lumped together. Like in my, I grew up in a church tradition where good works were a bad thing. Does that strike you as a little odd? Like you read about good works all through the New Testament and they're called good because they were thought of as good. Actually, you're commanded to do good works. James has some like really like scary things to say if you're not doing good works. Okay, something is not right. You're not doing it right or whatever. Like good works are a good thing. I would only hear that phrase as a pejorative. Oh, it's not about good works. Well, it kind of is. Like Jesus said something about that and like let your good works shine before others. I think it's like kind of a good thing. But there's this fear slash paranoia And some of it is a healthy fear, but I think we've moved past healthy fear to a little bit of a paranoia. And we forget that, no, like, again, as I said earlier, following Jesus and our transformation, it's a a transform, it's a partnership. Like, it's something that we do together with God. That's what it means to be human, this whole let go and let God thing. Like, whoa, 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 no. This is a partnership between you and God. Again, it's not a 50-50 partnership. God does all of the heavy lifting. God is the power source, not you, not me. But it is like an absolute thing that we do together with God. I think of um, every Sabbath morning, I make brunch for my family. And recently, my eight-year-old Moses is into cooking 
cooking, and he wants to help me make brunch, right? And so we sit down, and basically all he can do at eight at this point is like scramble the eggs or whatever. And then we make, I make this whole like spiel and all this avo toast and, you know, veggie side and like all this stuff. And then we sit down at the table and Moses will say, all right, everybody, you need to say thank you. Thank you. I made this amazing breakfast for you or whatever. And I, he takes credit for something that he did, you know, 5% of it or whatever. But there's this special like father-son moment, we're making brunch together. I almost wonder, maybe it's like that. Like, all you do is, like, crack an egg or two and scramble it, and then there's this feast, you know? It's not 50-50. It's, I don't know what the breakdown is, but God does all of the heavy lifting. But there is this us and Jesus together on the path to transformation. That is the what. Now, finally is the how, and this is where I want to spend a little bit more time. And then, Ryan, I don't know, do you have, um, Ryan, right? No? Daniel. Like I said, Daniel. <laughs> jet lag. Let's blame that on jet lag. Do you have a chart? My iPhone is, my iPad is about to die. Do you happen to have a charger? Some of us aren't an intellectual savant like Sayers who can just stand up and pontificate and be interesting. Some of us have to work for a living and um, have to like actually write something up. So if you have a charger, that would be great. Otherwise, this will be a really short ending. Um, <laughs> part three is, is the how. Um, And back again to that one key idea. I said this earlier. I know there's some overlap. But it's this. Following Jesus isn't about trying really hard, but training really hard. So we read that language right there in chapter 9. Like everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. This is the athletics metaphor. If you want to get in shape or run a marathon or whatever, you go to the gym. And like the smart approach is not just to try really hard. I want to bench press my own weight. You're trying really hard. And then you like crush your chest and die. The smart approach is you train really hard. You start small and you move up just a little bit at a time through training. In the same way, that is how we experience the life that we see in Jesus. Not through just trying really hard to not worry or to be happy or to love people or to not lust. Nothing wrong with effort, but through training really hard. And the way that we train is through the spiritual disciplines. It's through what's easier, just to go out this week and try really hard not to worry Or just to decide once a week to take a Sabbath and turn off your phone and do nothing. They're both hard, but one is impossible and the other is well within your grasp. Do you see the little bit of a difference there? Now on that note, here's six thoughts about smart training. Because there are ways to train well and ways to not train well at all. Do we have a little charger or something? Wow, look at this. Thank you so much. Sorry, it's like I have this really old iPad. It's, I'm so like Jesus, I don't always update my technology. <laughs> and uh, the downside is it's like does great, and then it gets to the last 10%. It's just like really bad. Okay, six thoughts about smart training. Don't think this is working. So it might be three thoughts about smart training. Here we go. <laughs> First off, smart training takes a balanced approach. You can plot the spiritual disciplines on four axis points. Next slide. Disciplines that you do alone, and then disciplines that you do in community. And then, of course, disciplines of, this is language you read a lot, of abstinence and disciplines of engagement. Now, when most people hear about the spiritual disciplines, they think that upper left-hand quadrant. So they think stuff you do alone and stuff you do like abstinence. So silence and solitude is a great example. And that is a spiritual discipline. 
But there's a whole gamut of spiritual disciplines. Just as important as, say, going to church on Sunday with hundreds of people and, and where you actually engage in it or doing justice or eating and drinking the body and the blood of Jesus or a weekly meal with your community. The odds are that based on your personality type, you gravitate to a side or a quadrant, right? So um, if you're into the Myers-Briggs, I'm an I-N. I mean an introvert, N meaning like thinker in my head. So like I gravitate way up to that upper left-hand quadrant. I'm just like, that's my happy place up there. Just me by myself, not eating and praying in a like Japanese monastery. That's like, ah, oh, that's my idea of heaven. Some of you are like, that's your idea of hell. You're just like, I want to go to church and I'm there every time it's open. Let's do justice and let's sing another song. We've sung 49 already. Let's sing another song. And like that's you're like, if you're an ES, uh, E being an extrovert, S meaning like your life of activity and outside of your head and like something with your body, like you're going to gravitate down to that bottom right-hand corner. That's not a bad thing at all. The reality is that based on your personality, we need a healthy kind of balance. Secondly, smart training takes into account your personality. So we need a balanced approach to the disciplines, but the reality is some of us need way more of one kind of discipline than another. So as an introvert, as an INTJ on the Myers-Briggs, I need a... T- we all need silence and solitude. I don't care how extroverted you are. You need- Sure, let's try another one because we're down to 4%. Let's see if this goes. Thank you. If not, don't worry about it. We'll just have to, like, actually be smart and trust Jesus. Boom. Mm-hmm. Oh, you have to turn it on. That's a great idea. There you have it. Thank you. But my point is, we all need silence and solitude. I don't care how extroverted you are, how social life of the part, you need to go get off alone by yourself. Jesus needed that. You need it too. And on the flip side, I don't care how introverted you are, how in your head you are, how, like, I need to get around a table, do life with other people, be in relationship. I need community. And the reality is true for all sorts of spiritual disciplines. For example, um, as a leader, I'm on stage a lot. And so one of the most important disciplines for me is what uh, has come to be called the discipline of secrecy which is based on Matthew chapter 6. It's a really very simple idea where you go do something Jesus-y and you don't post it on Instagram or Facebook or share a praise report with how awesome this thing was that you, you just do it and you don't tell anybody about it and it's between you and Jesus. I would give you an example, but that would kind of ruin the point. <laughs> right? <laughs> but, so for me, that's, that's very important. If you are, say, a full-time mom or dad and you're at home with a two-year-old, I'm thinking of you guys right now, and like, you're like every single day, you're with your little child at home, you don't need the discipline of secrecy. You need like the discipline of girls' night out or something like that. You need the discipline of celebration. You need to like take every Thursday and just go out with all your girlfriends or guy friends or whatever and just like have a beer and celebrate and like, ah, like not have throw up on you for three hours, you know? Like the reality is based on your personality, and your stage of life, and sing, your you know, relationship status, all of, no two of us are the same. We all connect with God in our own way. Gary Thomas writes about the nine sacred pathways. I'm not sure you're familiar, if you're familiar with this. I think it's helpful. One, naturalist, um, loving God out of doors. So you just come alive when you're out on a hike, or you're at the beach. You just want to get outside and walk and be in nature. Two, sensates, loving God with the senses. You just like meet God at the art museum. Like that's just your spot or over a really good meal or a cup of coffee. 
Three is traditionalist, loving God through ritual and symbol. You're like, why don't we do more liturgy at the church? And like, you just, that's your thing. Four is aesthetics, loving God on solitude and simplicity. You just want to go out to a monastery and just be activists, loving God through confrontation. You're like, I love God through a protest or through justice. Or like, I go to a developing country and I give away three weeks of my life. And I like, that's how you meet God. Caregivers, loving God by loving others. Some people, like the way you connect with God is you just sit with somebody who's going through divorce or just lost a loved one or is dealing with emotional pain and you're just, my wife is like this, like you're just there and you're present to them and you actually meet God in that moment. Enthusiast, um, loving God with mystery and celebration. You're like, I love God through a party. I just want to like throw this party and celebrate. Number eight, contemplatives, loving God through adoration, prayer, worship. And nine, intellectuals, loving God with the mind. Some of you, like, you just come alive in, like, an obscure novel or reading this in-depth theology book or just sitting through a lecture. And, like, that's, like, for me, that's just a part of me. Other people think it's boring or dry. For me, that's, like, oh, part of me comes alive. The key idea here is just be who you are. And there's stuff, yeah, we all, we all need to read our Bible. We all need to live in community. We all need to Sabbath, of course. But, like, tap into, find what is life-giving for you. Just that, oh, man, when I do this, I just, oh, I just feel God's presence, and I feel God's power over my life, and I just enjoy. Find out what that is for you, and then just go out and do it. Tap into the disciplines that make you come alive. Third is this, smart training takes into account your season of life. So not just your personality, but your season. Very different um, when you're, say, a single college student to an empty nester to single versus you have a spouse to you have little children or you have older children or you're in a really hard time in life or in work or a really easy time in life or work. You will face at some point in your journey what the ancients called the dark night of the soul. I don't have a lot of time to talk about that, but there, there is a time, there's a huge difference between, and I hesitate to even speak to this as a 37-year-old, but one of the main things in my own personal life, I've yet to teach on it, but that I'm reading about and researching and just wrestling with my own life is this kind of like stages of life and the first half and the second half of life. And a lot of good work has been done that there's, there's a big difference at some point, whether you're 30 or 40 or 50, there's a, there's a shift there. And there's a, a time when you're younger when the spiritual disciplines are more formulaic. Like you read your Bible and you pray and you experience God. And then all of a sudden that formula at some point starts to break down. And you do the same things, and they're good for you, and you continue, but the, the formula, life is no longer formulaic. When you're 20, 30, life has this kind of linear upward mobility feel to it, like you kind of feel like you're doing this, and then you get to a certain age, for me it was about 33, and it was all of a sudden I was just like, oh, like just kind of like, what, you know what I mean? And it's like when you're 25, you just have the sense of, I could become anybody. When you're 35, you're like, this is who I became. <laughs> That's my experience, right? You know, uh, you do 25, you do anything even kind of impressive, and people are like, how old are you? You're 35, you do anything, you're like, well, that's about time, you know? <laughs> like, so this, so this is a very different, like, there are stages to life. There are stages when you do the disciplines and you come alive at other stages when you just don't feel God's presence for a long period of time, and actually that's God. Actually, he's doing something in you. Actually, that's a sign of maturity, not immaturity, that you're moving forward, not moving backward. It's a whole other teaching. I don't have time. The key is to know your season and your stage of life and to adjust your practice accordingly. If you're in the dark night of the soul, you need to read your Bible and pray, but don't beat a dead horse. Don't, like, get up at four in the morning and do it for four hours. Like, just stay faithful. 
Um, there'll be other seasons of your life. There'll be some seasons of your life where you really need to focus on silence and solitude. God's doing a deep work in you. You need to go away. You need to let him do that. And there's other works where, other seasons of life where you're actually healthy. You've worked through a lot of stuff. And like, you need to get out and do some stuff. You need to do mission and ministry. And like, otherwise it's going to drift into apathy, right? Or navel gazing or whatever. Like, so you just need to know your season and your stage of life and adjust your practice. Four, smart training takes into account the need of the hour. The best teachers of the way, all that I know, all utilize the spiritual disciplines almost like a doctor would utilize a medicine or a form of therapy. As a general rule, if you're struggling with a sin of commission, you will need a discipline of abstinence. And if you're struggling with a sin of omission, you will need a discipline of engagement. Meaning, so if you're struggling with the sin of commission, you will need a discipline of abstinence. So say you're struggling with the sin of porn or gossip or something that you do and for some reason you can't stop doing. The odds are what you need, if you were a doctor, I was a doctor and you were to, you know, to prescribe you something, you need some kind of a discipline of abstinence. One of the best things to do if you're dealing with lust or, or gluttony or any kind of, I can't stop doing this, is fasting. Again, fasting is a fascinating commentary on the Western world. So fasting was one of the core disciplines for the early church. When Jesus actually teaches on the spiritual disciplines in Matthew chapter 6, for Jesus, the three core disciplines are almsgiving, or giving to the poor and justice, prayer and fasting. Isn't that interesting? How many of you would say those are the three most important things in following Jesus? Very few people in the Western world, very few people in the Western world fast at all. The early church would fast two days a week, every Wednesday, every Friday for several hundred years. Um, most of us don't get fasting because of our enlightenment culture. Enlightenment, we cannot even fathom a discipline that gets at transformation through our stomach, not through our mind. Like, because we're fasting. Have you ever, ever done it before? And you're like, what am I, why am I doing this? I just feel tired and hangry. And like, do you have hangry? Is that a word here? Like hungry and angry. I just feel like hangry. I don't feel like Jesus is like doing something to my soul. Actually, he is. It's just so similar to speaking in tongues. It's so foreign to the Western worldview because it's not getting into you through your mind. It's getting into you through your stomach, right? So the point is, that is a powerful discipline of abstinence. You abstain from food and you're actually often set free. What you'll notice if you fast for a while is your flesh starts to die off, both literally and spiritually. And your desires start to change and that what is happening to your body at a neurobiological level is actually happening to your soul at the same time because you're a whole person. You're a mind and a body and you're all together. So on the flip side, if you're struggling with the sin of omission, say you're just lazy, you're apathetic, you've been around the church for 30 years and you kind of know it all and you're like everything you're saying I already know, you need, the odds are, a discipline of engagement. You need to like, I don't know if this is improper to say here, you need to get off your butt and you need to... Go, hopefully that's not improper to say. And you need to go out and like do justice or serve the poor or get involved in your church or mentor a low-income student or a millennial in your church or adopt a kid out of the foster care system. Or like you need to go do something to break your life out of... Does that make sense? So just think of the disciplines that way. What do I need for this stage, this season? What is it that Jesus is working into me? Like what's the right discipline for the right time? I had somebody ask me a few days ago, I'm really struggling with pride. 
And like, how do I overcome pride in my life? And part of me just wanted to say, well, it was, she was about you know, 23, just keep living and it will take care of itself. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say. But uh, what I actually said was, Here's a, here are a few disciplines that I find really helpful in the struggle against pride. One is living in community. Like where like nobody's, like after a while they see through the facade and, and you don't believe your own press anymore and your stuff starts to come out. People love you, but you're not as, you realize you're not as awesome as you. Like living community to um, just serving and secrecy. Just like go do some Jesus-y things. Go wash some feet. Go volunteer somewhere. Go serve at your church. And just don't tell anybody. Don't post about it. Don't like write a blog about it and what it's doing to your heart. Just shut up and go do something Jesus-y. And, and what, what will happen is it will actually start to set you free from pride, from narcissism, from it's all about me, just through this discipline of I'm just going to volunteer at church every other week and not tell anybody about it. I'm just going to share a meal with the same group of 15 people from my church every Thursday night. Just through these disciplines, your heart, because you, you curate your heart, and your heart starts to change, and you start to get free, not through trying really hard to not be prideful, but just through being like Jesus, just doing Jesus without washing feet. I'll go do something like that once a week or whatever it is. Five, and two more, smart training isn't afraid to do the hard work. I hate to say this, but the disciplines that are the hardest for you are more than likely the ones that you need to do the most. It's just like that little mantra on exercise, follow the pain. So I, I don't like exercise. Again, I am on the Myers-Briggs. I like reading and coffee and a couch. That's what I like. Um, I don't like activity. I don't like to, I like to be alone and contemplate. And don't like exercise, but I do it, you know, on a five or six days a week. I'll go do something. Twice a week, I go to the gym with uh, a guy in my community, and we talk mostly and then work out a little bit um, <laughs> after that. And I was sitting talking to this guy, and is CrossFit like a cult here? Is it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I just want to, it is a cult. Let me say that from and so it's a huge thing in America. It's sweeping America right now. It's like, like the new church in the Western world. And I was chatting to this guy in my church. He's like, don't you just love going to the gym? I thought, no, I dread it all week long. The only thing good about the gym is I get to podcast sometimes. Like, you know? And he's like, oh, man, you just, you just need to go. I'm like, it's so hard. I just don't like to go. And like, it's painful. And he's like, man, you just need to go. What did he say? You just need to, this is like, here's how I think about it. And he's like, just shredded, right? He's a specimen, as we would say. He's like, you just need to go to the chair in the corner in the dark and sit in the chair of pain. I'm like, what are you smoking? I do, I don't want to go sit in the chair of pain. I want to have a flat white. I don't want to, right, you know? But in, this, in the same way, there's something to that. You follow the pain. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute, I just, I'm taking notes here. Right? I thought you just said, follow what makes you come alive. Now you're saying follow the pain? Which one is it? Both. It's both. And there is a tension there. Like, do the disciplines, again, as you said earlier, upstream and downstream. Do the disciplines that, oh, man, I do this and I come alive. If that's for you, once a week I go on a hike. Or whatever it is, like, do the, whatever, you come alive. But at the same time, there are other disciplines that the odds are hard and are difficult for you that you need more than anything. So, you know, sometimes, like a lot of people who don't, most people don't practice Sabbath. And so I love to talk about Sabbath and, and encourage people toward that. And often people will go give it a try and then come back to me a few weeks later and be like, I hated it. 
it was hard, and I just felt anxiety at first, and I didn't really know what to do, and like, who am I without my phone? Like, nobody, and like, whatever. And, and then they'll say, you know, I'm just, you're more introverted and kind of high-strung. I'm just kind of a people person. I'm an activity person. I don't, I don't think I need Sabbath. Maybe not. You know, Jesus needed it, so I'm guessing you need, Jesus needed it. So just think about that for your own, come to your own conclusion. Um, it might be that you don't need Sabbath. It's more than likely that just Sabbath is, doesn't come naturally for you. It doesn't come naturally for most people in our day and age. And it, it might be that it's actually a practice and it's a bit of an art form. And it might take you more than a week or two or three to kind of figure it out. It might take you a year or two or three before you kind of feel like, oh, yeah, this is, this is a part of who I am and a part of my rhythm and my life. And it, it might actually be that you're so restless and your identity is so caught up in what you do and what you buy and what you post and what other people think of you that the idea of just a whole day set aside for rest and worship where you come at a mind and body and soul level to a, play, to a stop, like that's so far from where you are, you're nowhere close. Just, just something for you to think about. That's all I'm saying. My point is, start small and work your way in. Finally is this, smart and then I'll be done. Smart training takes into account the need for repetition. There is no formation without repetition. It's true of any kind of exercise. It's true of any kind of skill, any kind of talent, any kind of career. And more than anything, it's true of transformation and the way of Jesus. There's no formation without repetition. The thing about the disciplines or the practices is that in the moment, you don't feel like they're doing much to you. You ever just feel like, I'm just at church and it's kind of good this time or kind of not good? Or I'm just, I read my Bible in the morning. There are times when I read my Bible and I feel like God is speaking to me off the page. There are other times when I read my Bible and I feel like Jeremiah was weird. <laughs> and what does this have to do with life, <laughs> right? There are times when I pray and I, there are times when I, I like to start my day with a little listening prayer. There are times when I, I just feel like download from God. I'm scribbling. He's saying this about the day, saying this about the day. He's saying this. There are other times when I, God, I'm here to hear your voice. okay, see you tomorrow. <laughs> like, you ever have that? Like, in the moment, like, and that's just life. That's why faithfulness, why repetition matters so much. There, but what we don't often realize is that over time, the disciplines have a cumulative effect on who we do or do not become. Best analogy I can think of is the Karate Kid, right? So disciplines are kind of like, remember that sort of Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid's like, in the moment, like it just feels like you're waxing a car for Mr. Mr. Miyagi. Actually, you're becoming the Karate Kid. You think it's wax on, wax off. Actually, it's no, this is, there's a larger thing here. In the moment, you feel like you're just reading your Bible and praying a little bit before you go to work or you're just podcasting whatever on the train or you're just going to church or you're just sitting around the table for a meal with your community or you're just reading this book, or you're just fasting for an afternoon, or it just doesn't feel like much, actually you're becoming a master apprentice of Jesus. Actually you're being transformed from the inside out. But again, it's slow, it's incremental, it's gradual, it's unglamorous, it's not sexy. There are moments of highs, but, but they're rare. Far and few between. Not bad, they're good, they're more than good, they're great. But most of life isn't a high. Most of life is, well, I've got to be at work at 8 a.m., let's go. And that's what following Jesus is like. And again, this is so hard in our quick, quick fix, instant gratification, instant message, kind of Wi-Fi, cellular. We want it all now. But following Jesus is a long, slow journey to transformation. 
and joy is, being fa- is found in just being fully present to God, yourself, and other people in each and every moment. So you're just all the way there in the here and the now. To end, G.K. Chesterton has that great parada- paragraph in Orthodoxy. You may or may not recognize this, but I just want to read it to you. He writes this, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free. Some of you parents are like, that's a nice way to put it. (laughs) Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does.